0: Uh, with God's help going to be closing out chapter 3. You will see in your bulletin that the scripture text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 11 to 13 but as some of you will remember I promised that we would come back and pick up some more of verses 6 through 10 this week and that's what we're going to do. Uh, And so we're going to begin our reading in verse 6 and we will read through verse 13. First Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning to read in verse 6, and reading through the end of verse 13, this is the conclusion of a very long section of thanksgiving that Paul has been offering to the Lord on behalf of the Thessalonians, primarily because of Christ's good work in them. And we will see that he follows that up with a prayer that God will uh, continue that work and bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Before we read this word together, Uh, let us go to him and seek his blessing on our study together. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that by your Spirit uh, you would make us both hearers and doers of it, that as uh, we hear Paul praying for the church today, so we would know that our Savior intercedes for us as well. And as we see these virtues and graces that Paul asks by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that you would give to your people, so we pray that we would be assured that this is what you have in store for your children. We pray, O Lord, that you would encourage us and give us confidence in Jesus Christ for the day of his return, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning to read in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself And our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless, in holiness, before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. In uh, uh, May 10th, on May 10th, 1996, John Krakauer became the 625th human being in history to set foot on the top of Mount Everest. Uh, By the time that he had reached the summit, he had been awake for 57 hours straight. In that same amount of time, he had eaten just barely a few hundred calories, and it was a grueling, arduous hazardous journey, but he made it. Uh, together with the rest of the team, 15 other guides and adventurers, they made the journey of a lifetime, and now from the top of the tallest peak on planet Earth, they only had to make it back down. Uh, Krakauer wrote about his experience. He says, reaching the top of Everest is supposed to trigger the surge of intense elation. Against long odds, I had attained a goal I'd coveted since childhood, but the summit was really only the halfway point. Any impulse I might have felt towards self-congratulation was extinguished by the overwhelming apprehension about the long, dangerous descent that lay ahead. Actually, dangerous is the right word for it. Because of the 16 travelers that stood atop Mount Everest that day, Uh, Only 11 of them made it back to base camp. Five of them lost their lives after the mountaintop experience on their way back down. There are many things in our lives that are really not done at all until they are done all the way. Before our first child was born, Sarah and I attended 13 consecutive sessions of natural childbirthing classes. During that same time, we took and attended exactly zero consecutive sessions of parenting classes. And so it dawned on me there in the recovery room with my wife and with my firstborn child that now we had to take this tiny person home with us, and I had no idea how to do that. Now, Paul and his companions traveled all over the ancient world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they did, some Jews and some pagan Gentiles believed. It was a new kind of birth. It was a different kind of mountaintop experience. They became known as Christians. And now, all they had to do was to keep going. Now, if you've been... Going in your Christian life for a while, that might sound more than a little bit daunting to you. All we have to do, of course, is keep putting one foot in front of the other. But Today's Reformation Sunday, and we're going to be closing our service today by singing Luther's hymn, where we read, and we will sing, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, that's what we're up against. A world full of devils. Devils without and temptations within, a world full of cultural and psychological and personal, and often we are the person, personal enemies to Christ and to his church. But you know, all we have to do is keep going. All we have to do is to grow up into maturity, into Christ. And it makes you realize that the Christian life is another one of those things that is not really done at all until it's done all the way. Halfway is not enough. Praise the Lord that Jesus Christ does not leave his people to figure out half of their Christian lives on their own. These verses, in fact, emphasize, they focus on the way that Christ himself completes the work that he begins in his people. The Lord never does anything by half measures. He always saves his people completely. That's the major takeaway. If you get nothing else from the sermon today, that main point encompasses all the other three points we're going to look at, that Jesus always saves his people completely. He doesn't leave us to work out the rest without him. There are three smaller points today, and I'm going to take the the heading for each of these points from a different phrase in our scripture text. From verse 8, we're going to look first at what it means to be standing fast in the Lord. Standing fast in the Lord. And then in verse 12, what it means for us to be abounding in love. And finally, in verse 13, what it means to be blameless in holiness. Standing in the Lord, abounding in love blameless and holiness now we begin with uh, verses 7 and 8 read them again for this reason brothers in all our distress and affliction we have been comforted about you through your faith for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord we did look at this passage a little bit last week we looked at it uh, in the context of the communion that believers share one with another The idea that there is a unity among Christians because we have been united to Christ. But now, as we look at this uh, this verse again, I want you to see how it is that we are united to Christ. Paul calls it standing fast in the Lord. The word means to be unmoved. To be unshakable, it means not easily shifted from where you have placed your footing. Imagine, if you will, a ballerina trying to shove a sumo wrestler out of the ring. But the sumo wrestler will not be shifted. That's the picture that Paul gives us here, standing fast in the Lord. Now, Actually, this word, when Paul uses it in his letters... Uh, typically shows up not as a description of Christianity, but as the command of Christianity. Not what our, uh, our Christian lives feel like, but what our Christian lives demand of us. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, Paul tells the believers there to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. It's a command. He's saying that if you're going to be a Christian, it's going to take a bit of backbone, actually. The opposite of this idea also shows up in Scripture. When it does, it, it shows up uh, in the language of someone who shrinks back, someone who is easily shaken. And so if you flip the page over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there in verses 1 and 2, Paul gives a warning to the church. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect of the day the Lord has already come. There are imposters going around, men spreading false doctrine. Paul, and Paul is saying, do not let that kind of teaching push you around, dear Christians. Don't be quickly shaken. Instead, if you keep reading, in verse 15, Paul tells them, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. What is the opposite of being quickly shaken? It is standing firm. It is holding fast to Jesus. And all of that very obvious discussion is to tell us that what Paul is describing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 is a commitment. It's a commitment. He's talking about the willingness to be counted with Jesus Christ. He's talking about being connected to him. It's the language of loyalty. And especially when we consider the afflictions that the church in Thessalonica was experiencing because of their newfound faith, uh, it is a matter of being counted with Jesus, whatever it might cost them. Think about it, there were dangers, and there were fears, and there were persecutions facing the church. From the very first visit of Paul, the apostolic word had been financially disadvantageous to a man named Jason and his family. That means it was bad, right? It was harmful to his bottom line. The civil authorities were now watching the Christians in this city to make sure that they were not spreading propaganda about some king other than Caesar. Their faith made them different from their neighbors and from their family members. There was external pressure around them to conform to the norms and the ideals of a godless pagan society. They had every outward, earthly, humanistic reason to turn aside from standing fast in Jesus. But they didn't. And this speaks to us because it shows us precisely where the life of every believer begins. And Paul's talking about this this sort of stone-faced commitment to be found in the Lord, to be identified with him. And if we're not careful, we can begin to think that Paul is talking about something that, that God only demands from a small subset, a little handful of his believers in the world. We can tend to get this sort of hierarchy in our minds. We don't say it out loud, but it's there, this idea Uh, that what God demands from some Christians is different from what he demands from others. And so at the top of the hierarchy, all the way at the the highest demand, are those believers in persecuted countries, our fellow Christians in places like Sri Lanka, and with them are foreign missionaries. They go into exotic places, and they face exotic temptations, and they're the ones who really, really have to be committed to Christ in the world. And then we take a step down uh, and we say, well, well, maybe next in line for commitment to Christ are the domestic missionaries, our, our campus leaders, our military chaplains, our our church planters. They also have to be different from the world and committed to Christ, but you know they need to be accessible too, don't they? They don't want to be too extreme, too out there. And then we keep on stepping down. Well, well maybe next it's Maybe next is the pastors. It's the elders in the local churches. It's the deacons. It's the Bible study leaders. And each t- time we take a step down that ladder from super Christian to normal Christian, we imagine that wherever we might find ourselves, uh, that God probably doesn't expect the same thing from us as he does from the people who are just a little bit beyond us. It's not true, of course. But we know it's not true. We know it's not true because what Paul is describing is the basic starting point of all Christian life. Notice the parallel language that he gives us here. He speaks in this passage about Timothy bringing a good report of their faith and love. In verse 7 he says we find comfort about you in your faith. And then verse 8 he explains what he's talking about. Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What does it mean to stand fast in the Lord? It means to have faith. It means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are uh, two ways of describing the same reality. And this is the way it happens. This is where Christian life begins for every single believer. It doesn't matter if they're a convert in North Korea or the covenant child who grows up in the suburbs outside of Boston. It always begins with the Holy Spirit working to regenerate our dead hearts. It begins when he gives us new birth and he pours into us the beginning blessings of faith and repentance. That is where life starts for every single Christian. And faith always takes the shape of standing fast in Christ. Takes the shape of being counted with him. So what I think that means is that we misunderstand what it means to be a Christian when we misunderstand what faith demands of us. Typically, I think we do this by getting ahead of ourselves. We compare ourselves to those other believers. We assume that real faith, you know, this real super-Christian kind of faith, well, that means that we have to forsake the whole world in order to be numbered with Jesus. But actually, the demand of faith is much closer to home than that. It's actually much bigger than that. The gospel confronts us each with the news that we are condemned in our sin. Before the world ever gets its claws into us, before Satan ever lays his hands on us, we're already dead in our transgressions. The gospel proclaims that by our own works and according to our own righteousness, we have no hope of fellowship with the God who created us. The gospel also proclaims that through Jesus we can be forgiven. The good news of Jesus proclaims that our sinful actions and our sinful thoughts and our sinful motives and desires can be erased and forgotten. Better yet, they can be replaced. Right, Because the gospel proclaims to us that Jesus Christ offers us a fellowship with the Father that is not ours. Luther called it an alien righteousness, something that comes from outside of us that God gives to us that he counts as though it were ours. Something that we receive not by working but by believing, but that means that the foundational question of our Christian faith is not, will you forsake the whole world? But The foundational question of our Christian faith is, will you forsake yourself? Herman Bavinck put it this way. He said, true, genuine Christian faith is a complete renunciation of all things, a crucifixion and a burial of oneself. It is a spiritual experience in which everything we previously trusted in disappears. I think we can put it more simply. I think we can say that when the Bible shows you your sin... And then the Bible shows you your Savior, does it leave you saying, he's what I need? Or does it leave you saying, I think I can figure this out on my own. I think if I just keep going a little bit further, if I keep digging a little bit deeper, if I keep trying a little bit harder, I think I can work it out. not a question primarily of whether you're willing to forsake the world that comes later and it comes naturally if you've answered the first question are you willing to forsake yourself that's what it means to stand fast in Jesus that's what it means to have faith in him it means first not putting your faith in yourself now well, this is what it means to stand firm not Standing just with Jesus, but standing in him. It's this identification, this spiritual declaration that he is our hope, and he is our righteousness, and he is our salvation. And he's the one who saves us completely. Well, Christian life begins when we're standing in the Lord. It continues, though, as as we abound in love. This is Paul's prayer at the end of the chapter, verses 11 to 13. Paul says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Love, says Paul. That's what the church needs. They're already standing in Jesus, they're already bearing up under the weight of their afflictions. There are some things they could use, maybe another apostolic visit to fill in the gaps of their understanding of Jesus. He'd only been with them a little bit and he hopes that he can come back, but love is what they really need. It's the kind of virtue he seems to be saying that the church can never have enough of, no matter how much we might have. He talks of increasing and abounding. It's the language of richness, of of prosperity even.
1: Not worldly
0: prosperity, but prosperity in the gifts and graces that God gives his people. Psalm 23, the psalmist says, Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. That's the kind of love that Paul prays for the church. Love that spilleth out everywhere. Love that runneth over, love that that increases and abounds and flows out from the lives of believers to one another and from the lives of the gathered church into the watching world around them. Now you know that the New Testament has a lot to say about love in the Christian life. And the New Testament has a lot to say about love because Jesus had a lot to say about love. It was one of the the foundational emphases of his ministry and of his teaching to all of his people. Jesus said love was our new commandment, that just as he had loved us, so we ought to love one another. Jesus said greater love hath no one than this, that one should lay down his life for his friends. Jesus said that we ought to love our enemies, because if we only love the people who love us back, what good is that? Right, Jesus' teaching was soaked in love. It was saturated in it. And all of his instructions about love for his people, they all orbited around that central sun, that star of, of his love demonstrated and poured out for his children on the cross. In fact, you may be aware that the love of Jesus is the kind of thing that almost everyone seems to get excited about, Christians and non-Christians. Hindus and and humanists, lots of people, seem to be attracted to this radical love of Jesus Christ. A particular English philosopher by the name of Elton John put it this way. He says, I think that Jesus was a compassionate man who understood human problems. On the cross, he forgave the people who crucified him. Jesus wanted us to be loving and forgiven too. Forgiving, sorry. He wanted us to be loving and forgiving. Eldon John said that. The point is that you can find any number of other quotations from any number of other unbelievers to demonstrate the same basic approach to Jesus of Nazareth. They may not believe that he was the eternal son of God incarnate. They may not believe that he was a prophet or a miracle worker. They may not believe a single word he ever said about who he really is. But even unbelievers seem to love the love of Jesus. You know, the way that that typically goes is that without believing in the things that Jesus said about who he is, they also tend to ignore what Jesus said about what love is supposed to be. So sure, love is great, says the world. Love's a wonderful thing. We love love so long as it shows up in the way that conforms to our imaginations. You've heard the phrase going around like some terrible virus, right? The tagline that says, love is love. Typically, it gets tied to a particular sexual ethic, but it's really uh, just an indicator of a wider approach in our larger culture. The idea that says that if love is anything, love is foundationally permissive. Love is laissez-faire. Love is whatever you want to do. Love is this generalized approach to everybody around you that says, you know, you do you so long as it makes you happy and I'll support you in that. Except that is not what Jesus taught when he taught about love. Jesus told us that the greatest commandment God ever gave to humanity was that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. The second was like it we should love our neighbors as ourselves. But you know, many people seem to latch on to commandment number two and ignore commandment number one. It doesn't work that way. You can't have a house without a foundation. And that's what happens when we try to say, well, we're supposed to love one another, but we have no idea what love is supposed to look like. Jesus says it's, first of all, a theological proposition before it's a human interaction. Love begins with loving the Lord our God, all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. On this, says Jesus, hang all the laws and all the prophets of all the Jewish scriptures. And Paul, who's writing these words, who's praying to this Lord, has a very similar idea of what love is supposed to be in the Christian life. Romans chapter 13, excuse me, Romans 13, verse 10. Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Doesn't that sound a lot like Jesus? Jesus. Jesus says on this commandment hangs all the law and the prophets. Paul says love is the fulfilling of the law. That helps us to understand the bridge that Paul is making here between faith in verses 6 to 10 and holiness in verse 13. It helps us to understand the bridge that he is using to connect standing in Jesus now and standing with Jesus at the end of days. The bridge that he uses is love. He's praying for a love that doesn't show up in a sort of squishy sentimentality or a generalized sort of kindness. Paul is praying for love shaped by God's holiness. He's praying for love that conforms to God's character. He's praying for love that that seeks what is best, both physically and spiritually, for our neighbor even if what is best for our neighbor isn't what is easiest or most comfortable for us. We might say that Paul is praying for the church to be filled with the kind of love that looks like God's love for us, a pure love and a a holy love, a love that pursues people that don't deserve to be pursued, a love that reconciles people that shouldn't be Uh, in their own rights, reconciled. A love that forgives people that don't deserve to be forgiven. A love that makes friends out of enemies. That's the kind of love that ought to overflow in the church. The kind of love that leaves leaves no room for grudges between brothers and sisters in Christ. No unconfessed sins, no unforgiven transgressions. It's the kind of love that protects the modesty and the property and the dignity of the person sitting next to us. It's the kind of love that speaks the truth even when the, sp- when the truth is hard to say and hard to hear. This is the kind of love that ought to be expressed from one believer to another and from all the gathered believers to the watching world. And who better to give that kind of love to God's people than the Savior who not only defined real love for us but demonstrated it for us in the cross of Calvary. In fact, who else is able to give that kind of love to Christ's church than the one who created the church by his love in the first place? And so Paul prays, may the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, may the Lord Jesus make you increase and abound in love. If you're standing fast in him, where does this love come from? It comes from him. He works in you by his Holy Spirit. You've got to put it into practice. You've got to actually do the labor of love that Paul wrote about in chapter 1. You've got to engage in the practice of loving your brothers and sisters and loving the world around you even when it's not easy. But where does it come from? It comes from him. It's a fruit of his spirit. It is his character showing up in his people. He's at work because he always saves His people, completely. Jesus takes those who are standing in Him, and He makes them to abound in love, so that at the last day they will be established blameless in holiness. Here's our final point, because this is where Paul closes out his prayer. Uh, Verse 12 again, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love, verse 13, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul loves construction metaphors, temples and houses being built, and a master builder laying foundations. He returns to that language here when he's talking about being established. It's being set up, it's, it's being solidified, it's, it's something being strengthened. It's the other side of the language that we found in verse 8. There, the believers are standing fast. They were the ones doing the standing. We know, of course, that it was the Holy Spirit enabling them. There, he says, you're standing fast. Well, now we're, we're approaching the same landmark, but from the other direction. If you prefer it in the passive voice, they are the ones who are being established because it is Christ himself who is establishing them. That's clear enough, but if we want to understand the significance of all that, we need to know two things. We need to know when it is that they are established, and we need to know what they are established for. When is the easier question. Paul says it's at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints, It's the second coming. It is the return of Christ, his second advent. It's the day that Christ himself proclaimed and prophesied when he was with his people. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back to take you with me where I am, that where I am you may be with me. It's his second coming that he's talking about. It's the day that Christ returns to take his church home. That's when they are established. But it's also the day that Christ comes to judge the world in righteousness. It's the same day. The day he comes to take his children and the day he comes to judge the world. And so this is the answer to the what question. What are they being established for? And the answer is to be sustained in the judgment of the Lord. He says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. That word coming in verse 13 is one of those Greek New Testament words that you've probably heard. It's parousia. It is a a, a visitation, a a formal sort of technical term, originally in the Greek and Roman world, to talk about a, a royal visit, a visit with political implications. And so when a ruler in the ancient world in these days wanted to solidify their own rule in a particular place, they would show up in person. The place where they came, the the town would roll out the proverbial carpet. They would shower the ruler with gifts. They would, in turn, see the ruler take his seat among the people in the common square. He would begin to do two things. He would begin to hand out gifts and graces and blessings for those who were loyal. He would begin to hand down judgments for those who were not. And as the Holy Spirit is inspiring the writing of the New Testament, as the apostles are going out with the message of the gospel, the Holy Spirit puts this picture into their pens. The parousia, the coming of Jesus Christ, like the coming of a great king. And he's going to arrive for blessing and for judgment, for joy and for shame. And once we understand that, we can feel the weight of just what Paul is praying for his people. He's asking that their hearts or their consciences would be so strengthened by faith, working through love, that they would fear no condemnation at the final judgment. This is a prayer for confidence before the Lord. He's asking that just as they were standing fast before the watching world now, so also they would be strengthened to stand before him whom Habakkuk says is of purer eyes than to behold evil who cannot look upon iniquity. Paul wants the church to come into the presence of the God who is a consuming fire and somehow to come out clean on the other side. And how does he pray that it will happen? He says, by hearts established, blameless in holiness. Now maybe for a minute, for for some of you, depending on your background, depending on your sensitivities, maybe that sounds strange to you. And if it does, it might sound strange because it might sound at first reading that, that Paul is asking that believers in Thessalonica would themselves become holy. That they would become holy enough, righteous enough, that at the test of God's judgment at the last day, God would look at them and say, now the work's done. Now it's finished. Now you're righteous. Now you're justified. That should sound strange to you, if that's what it sounds like. That is essentially the teaching of the Roman Catholic faith. Rome teaches that Christ's righteousness is not something imputed or counted to believers, but something infused into them. Not something counted theirs by faith alone, but something that becomes theirs by works. Like a tea bag steeping in a cup of hot water. They teach that God's power, little by little, Christians become more and more personally holy until they're holy enough, finally. You put the Thanksgiving turkey in the oven and it cooks and it cooks and it cooks until pop, a little indicator pops. Oh, now it's done. Right? That's a crass sort of way of putting it, maybe, but that's essentially the teaching. Not imputed, but infused, little by little, more and more, becoming holy by doing holy things, until finally at the last day, God can look at them and say, now you're done. The problem is, that's not the teaching of the Bible. That's not the teaching of this text. Uh, In order to see that uh, more clearly, we need to think about how God's declaration of just works. justification. When God declares his people righteous, how does it happen? And when does it happen, actually? Does it wait for the last day? Does it wait until it is finally revealed to be be said or to be declared at all? Or does it happen differently and at a different time and on a different basis? Turn with me back to Romans. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, beginning to read in the second half of verse 22. The question is how does God justify his people? How does he declare them righteous and when? Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Right standing before the Lord is a gift of grace received by faith, full stop. Not by works. In the next three or four chapters in Romans, we'll spell that out. Not something that we have to work out little by little until the little turkey indicator pops. But something that proves not our righteousness, but God's righteousness. Do you notice that? The declaration of justification doesn't prove us, it proves God. That he gave Christ as a gift for us to be received by faith, so that at the end of days, he's the one that will look at and say, He is righteous. And yet we're established before him. Well, at the coronation of C.S. Lewis's Land of Narnia, Aslan crowned four monarchs, didn't he? It was Peter, and it was Edmund, and it was Susan, and it was Lucy. And Edmund, we're told, is known as Edmund the Just. Which, if you remember the story, is either a terrible joke or a wonderful blessing, because Edmund was not just. Edmund was a traitor. Edmund was the one who rebelled against the kingdom. Edmund was the one who would have sold the entire kingdom for just a little bit more dessert, just for the censor, the opportunity to be considered better than his siblings. That's all he wanted but the traitor had been redeemed. And it happened for Edmund how it happens for us, that the title of just is a gift given by grace. It is a judgment of mercy received by faith, not by works. So then, back to 1 Thessalonians, if that's what happens in God's judgment, if that's how he declares his people righteous, then what is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 talking about? Why do we need to have our hearts established, blameless in holiness? And The answer is for confidence. The theological term is the assurance of our salvation. Perhaps you've heard the uh, the quotation that at the time of the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, there was a a Roman Catholic cardinal by the name of Bellarmine, and he said the greatest heresy of these Protestants is the doctrine of assurance, he said. Assurance of salvation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, it is referring to actual growth in personal holiness. It is talking about God's people more and more dying to sin and living unto righteousness, but not so that we can be good enough so that God says that we're good enough. Rather, it is so that we will have assurance of salvation while we wait, because the Apostle knows that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He knows that it's a terrible thing to stand before the judgment seat if we have no righteousness on which to stand. And yet he wants believers in Christ to look forward to that day, to anticipate it. Not with fear, but with joy. Not with terror, but with rejoicing. And so he prays for the church. That the church would grow in holiness. So they would see and believe and rejoice in the good work that Christ is doing in them. Not so that they could have confidence in themselves, but so that they would have assurance in the full and finished work of Jesus. One last scripture to help us see this. It's 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. John says, And now, little children, abide in him. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him and shame at his coming. That's what it means to find salvation in Jesus. It means to stand fast in him. It means to have no reason to shrink in shame at his coming. It means that those who are standing him will abound in love so that we will have confidence. Not in ourselves, but in Jesus. Because Jesus always saves his people completely. Let's pray together. O gracious Lord and righteous judge of all the earth, we thank you for Christ our Savior. We thank you that he was given up for our trespasses. We thank you that he was raised for our justification. We thank you for the full and free and finished work of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would work faith into the ears of all who hear, that we would trust in him and find life by his name, that you would complete the work that you've begun in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.